Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today, I'm joined by my longtime friend, John Taft, who is vice chair of Baird. John, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Chaz. Well, one of the first things I think about when I think about your career is just how varied and unusual it's been in some respects. I knew you back when you uh, ran Voyager Asset Management in Minneapolis, an institutional and mutual fund company. Then you went on to RBC Wealth Management and then to vice chair of Baird. It's, it's a very interesting series of moves and kind of where you've come to. I, I just love to get your thoughts on how you ended up there. Well, thank you, Chaz. Yes, I, I uh, have enjoyed a and continue to enjoy a career that covers uh, many different areas in the financial services arena. Uh, the most interesting part of, of my career, I think, was one you didn't mention, and that is uh, where I started. I joined the public finance department of Piper Jaffray and Hopwood, a regional uh, investment banking firm based in Minneapolis, uh, straight out of graduate school. And uh, I did so because of a story that I covered and wrote about when I was a newspaper reporter, which was my first choice for a career. And the story was about the redevelopment of a city in Northeastern Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts, which thanks to the vision and creativity of its civic leaders was able to completely reinvent itself using a wide range of uh, financial tools, tax incentives, accelerated depreciation, historic credits of various kinds, federal, state, local, uh, public money, private money, not-for-profit assistance, all of which fascinated me. And I thought, I want to understand how to do this. I want to understand the financial tools that the, this community used to totally remake itself for the benefit of its citizens. And uh, that's what brought me to graduate school. And that what, that's what got me into the public finance business. From there, public finance, as you know, is really all about municipal bonds. I, I was asked to run Voyager Asset Management, which was a municipal bond fund company. The connection there was municipal bonds. And we sold that 10 years later to RBC. Uh, and I was asked to run uh, the wealth management business after a few years. In my current role at Baird, I do all of the above and other things. Uh, and it's kept me... <laughs> intellectually alive for 40 years, which I'm very grateful for. Well, you know, one of the other things about you that people might not know is that you're also an author and you're an author about industry topics. I think you've written two books, one stewardship and the other a force for good. That's correct. One was uh, my thoughts on what I think is the core principle that should be at the foundation of the financial services industry, which I call stewardship which is really managing others' assets for the greater good. And uh, stewardship is both a secular and religious term. When, when the king or queen went abroad to uh, find a bride or, or fight a war, the kingdom was managed by stewards in their absence. And then, of course, we are all stewards in a way of God's dominion, the earth. But that, that principle 
uh, really applies, I think, very well to the financial services industry. And when we do what we're supposed to do, we are merely helping others manage um, their assets. And when we get away from that, that's when we get in trouble. So that book was about stewardship. The other one was just a compendium about um, by uh, 20 different luminaries in our industry. Stewardship looked backwards at what happened to cause a financial crisis. I think it was a failure in stewardship, a failure to stay true to the core principle, uh, the foundation of finance. And the force for good looked forward asking, what is it we need to do to be a force for good in the financial services industry? Again, it was 20 uh, curated essays by people who are much smarter and better known than myself, like Jack Vogel, Robert Schiller, Mary Shapiro, uh, Sheila Beer, so forth. And I think that that set of issues and that book really speaks to this topic that you and I have discussed before, which is the whole notion of whether the investment management industry is really better run as a profession, much like the law profession or the accounting profession or the, the uh, medical profession, uh, versus running it as a business. And as you know, having our long relationship and having been a participant in some of the old research studies that we did 30 years ago in competitive challenges, I spent a lot of time thinking about how investment and wealth management firms compete and function as businesses. And we've had a long running dialogue around the notion of, is the business of investment management competing, doing well by shareholders, which in many cases are employees? How is that aligned with the client common good? But this whole notion of it's a competitive business and in order to survive and sustain yourself, you need to think that way versus being more of a profession more of kind of the old school notion that Charlie Ellis actually talked at length about at one of the Greenwich conferences a long way ago, in terms of the fact that the business in fact had become too cutthroat and had become too focused on margin and growth and things that were not necessarily in the client's best interest, which I think kind of dovetails back to some of the things you've written about in terms of putting the client first. Can you reconcile this notion of investment and wealth management as business versus profession? It's a fascinating question. And you mentioned Charlie Ellis. He was one of the contributors to my book, A Force for Good. And he talked about culture drift in the book and what happens in, in an organization. In, in, uh, in, in his case, the chapter he contributed to my book, it was about Goldman Sachs. The truth is that the wealth management business, the asset management business, they are hybrids. They represent, there are aspects of both endeavors that are professions, and there are aspects of both endeavors that are business-like. But the way you bring them both together is what you mentioned, and that is, in either case, profession or business, they need to be focused on the best interests of their end clients or their end customers. The fact that we used the word client, Chaz, in, in both businesses instead of customer acknowledges that there is a client first dynamic at play in both types of businesses. And, and you have to stay focused on that. Primary focus of the business needs to be uh, what's good best for the customers. Every time we've gotten away from that, we focused on what's good for management or what's good for the shareholders, 
we have strayed from the core principle of stewardship and we have gotten ourselves and society into trouble. Yep. Well, John, one of the great factors to that point, and I guess maybe the, the biggest tidal wave that has rolled over our industry and affects the dynamic of the client first perspective is the unprecedented amount of M&A activity in our industry. You've witnessed it as I have, you've been part of it. It's just unbelievable to me, both how much has been done, the many hundreds of deals in asset and wealth management since the beginning of COVID. And then the fact that so many of these investments have been made with little or no actual personal contact with the business that's being acquired. And that, uh, some tell me, is the new normal. And that if you want to be part of the M&A dynamic, that's something that you've got to be willing to do. But it certainly stresses this whole notion of how is it that ever more M&A is really in the client's best interest? Well, I think, I think you have... have uh, done some things and have some thoughts about how you pursue thoughtful acquisitions and inorganic growth at Baird that you can share on this topic. Well, not just at Baird, but you know, I've probably be, been involved in about a dozen acquisitions in the wealth and the uh, asset management spaces over the course of my career. And I, I would tell you that today, the thing that troubles me, it's driven by the amount of dry powder in the hands of private equity firms who are looking for a way to deploy that and turn it into profits within five to seven years, which is a ridiculously short time horizon in, uh, in the scheme of things when it comes to both wealth management and uh, uh, asset management. And these private equity firms are pursuing you know, roll up strategies that is buy a bunch of the same of like businesses and uh, arbitraging private market multiples for public market multiples uh, and selling the businesses to other private equity firms. It's a it's a merry go round of financial engineering that has nothing to do with the best interests of the client. And that troubles me a lot. There are any number of types of of acquisitions or strategic investments that uh, firms make, have made, will continue to make, where the client comes out better. Why? Because a team of professionals, for example, uh, folds into a larger organization and gets access to a wider range uh, and better uh, quality services or products or, or advice. Um, th that kind of acquisition done properly is is good, but most of the activity we see in the M&A business and in the two industries we're talking about today is uh, return-driven, uh, LP return-driven, and makes, well, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. It's not good for the client. Yeah, no, we're living it, um, and as you know, I used to be one of those private equity fund folks on the hamster wheel that basically had to launch funds, invest funds, wind up funds, and get on to the next one in that probably more seven to 10 year period. But still, it just kind of goes against the, the whole thinking around A, um, it takes a while, especially if you allow for 
uh, variations and possible dislocations in markets, the fact that not everything just is off to an immediate sweeping success. Sometimes it takes time for partnerships and people and uh, new ways of doing things to really gel. So when you, when you know that as soon as you've made the investment that you've got to start having the exit in sight, it's a big challenge. It's one of the reasons why we're so happy to be a truly permanent capital provider now and to have no timeline and to have no fund. Absolutely. And think about, Chaz, um, what a common uh, feature of the professions. You know, you, what do you, what, how long have you had your family doctor or your accountant or your, or your uh, you know, estate attorney? In, in my case, decades. Longevity, continuity is a core feature of professional services. And um, unfortunately, what, what goes on in the industry these days cuts against uh, uh, long-term thinking and continuity. But one thing I would say there, John, an observation from my end is that a lot of this is not necessarily the manager's fault if, we, if we're gonna assign blame in any way. It's literally a matter of size and scale and the fact that so many successful firms who have done a very good job for their clients across asset classes and across uh, different sizes, basically the valuation has run away from the uh, employee's ability to continue to purchase the firm from their older partners or from parent organizations at even modest levels. And that's become an issue that we've seen really grow and become much more obvious in the last five to 10 years. It's that success becomes one of the biggest challenges. And for a lot of owners of asset and wealth management firms, they don't have a reasonable solution to continue to sell internally unless they're going to do it along the lines of dodging Cox or GMO or the old Scudder Stevens, which basically is to sell it at book value, which is to say to ignore capital value and not to seek liquidity at quote, market multiples or any kind of multiple, but to transition stock internally the way uh, law firms and accounting firms have long done it. And that, that absolutely has a place among this kind of client first, no ulterior motive. We're not just here to kind of get rich within a time frame, and then it's somebody else's problem. But there's no doubt, this is a very widespread conundrum in our business. Yes, it is. I would I would point out that I work for a firm, Baird, where um, two thirds of our employees own ninety five percent of the firm. The stock is bought at book value, and the stock is repurchased from the employee when they leave at book value. It is a book value paradigm. But you're you're right. There is a cost to a legacy. That's actually a quote that one of the firms that we invested in. Uh, their CEO of the firm has has used. There is a cost to legacy to the extent a wealth management business or an asset management business wants to continue on and perpetuate the legacy uh, that the founders created. There's a cost to that, and the cost comes in the form of needing to value equity in the business for purchase by the successor generation at uh, levels, in many cases, well below market value. If you want the successor generation to step into the shoes of the founders and have an equity interest in running the business they're part of. And there's just no two ways around it, but it's a challenge in our industry. I would say 
Chaz, back to the role you play at Rosemont Partners and continue to play today. That's a, that's a place where strategic investments, you know, minority investments from long-term permanent cap sources of capital can play a, a really important role in, in perpetuating some of the best businesses out there. Well, you know, um, given how long we've known one another, that that is what I've done for the last 20 plus years. And Rosemont Partners, the private equity business, did try to serve that role of minority investor alongside willing and able um, employees, both the current generation of partners and hopefully the next generation. But you've got to have a group of people who are willing to risk something and that actually view equity as something um, worth kind of putting their career, gambling their career on, as opposed to, I need to be paid X, and I also should be a shareholder, and that should be on top of whatever it is I'm getting paid, instead of a form of my value creation. A very important form of my value creation is buying equity or being part of a uh, grant program or a phantom equity program or some other means of being equitized that I value deeply. And the truth is, John, there's many, many fewer firms today who actually have that dynamic at work than there Agreed. used to be. Agreed. Many fewer. Well, I don't want to belabor that, that point further because how you and I feel, I don't think will change uh, the M&A hit parade, um, which I think will go on unabated for the foreseeable future. I do want to come back to responsible finance and both kind of the evolution of your career and the topic that you and I have discussed on several occasions, which is the interest that we both have in ESG and impact and how ESG and impact is being used in the asset and wealth management business and how specifically an open architecture solutions-based uh, wealth management or advisory firm that can invest across the asset class spectrum, but in a fully integrated ESG and impact means. In other words, having that as the core backbone of the firm, as opposed to screening or greenwashing or other means of selection, it becomes the core DNA of how people think. And as you and I have discussed, I just think that that is a, a, an absolutely clear uh, North Star for advisory businesses. And you can already see the massive amount of change and the, uh, the, the work that's going into the institutional business from what consultants and allocators are asking people to do and how you're now being graded and evaluated on your ESG and impact uh, capability, resource, authenticity, et cetera. Talk to me a little bit about how that is played out in your mind and, and what you're doing about it at Baird? Well, I would, I, so <laughs> on the one hand, the, the, the growing importance of ESG investing, socially responsible investing, impact investing, all different flavors of the same ice cream, which is really aligning your values with your investment activities. Um, the growing popularity and importance of that is a, I think, a, a force for good, to, to, to use the title of my book. And it's exciting. On the other hand, it's still a trend that's in its you know, adolescence 
and there are a lot of problems with it. But you know, we just have to be patient and let those let those things settle down. What am I talking about? Well, you know, just the fact that there's no standard, at, at least in financial accounting, there are there are well-defined, established, long-held accounting principles and standards that are used in measuring the financial performance of a firm. But there isn't any consistency. There are no standards. There isn't anything that's been around for a long time when it comes to measuring the impact of a business uh, on the world or society or on measuring to what degree an investment strategy really does embed environmental, social, and governance factors in its approach. And as a result of that, <laughs> it's just a, it's a lot of confusion. It's a lot of inconsistency. And there are, there are many, many people trying to work through that and get us to a place where, where investors um, have more clarity and definition and can make better choices uh, about what types of investment strategies or what types of wealth management activities they should be engaging in in order to, um, to align their values, whatever they may be, uh, with their investment and wealth management activities. So we've yep, got a yep. long way to go. But in, in general, the, the trend is a positive one for our industry, and it's a positive one for society. Completely agree. And I think it's a melting pot of issues. I agree that the, the whole standard and being able to really assess objectively is really challenging. I think that Europe and, and perhaps some other parts of the world are still leading the US. And so we're playing catch up in a way, but I, I think more specifically, I'm curious if you agree with this. One of the things that I think will help develop more specificity and start to shake out um, where ESG and impact evolve is and are the specific issues. So social justice, equity and inclusion, diversity, climate change. For some investors, one of those issues is absolutely paramount. And that's often what drives their investment thinking. And they would like to have their portfolio. That's their mission. And they like to have their portfolio represented and invested accordingly. For other, I guess I would kind of- I would compare. call that, the, yeah. I would call that those, those approaches thematic investing jazz mm -hmm. where you pick a pick an issue and mm -hmm. you invest in a way or impact thematic or mm -hmm. impact and you try to have impact on that issue well I, I agree with that and there are many themes the ones that i've mentioned community development finance organizations there are many ways to quote play it i guess what i'm getting at is the managers of capital have one perspective which is what they're going to do to quote, be considered and or make their processes appealing. And, and part of that is marketing, like it or not, that what is a lot of what is happening out there. But I kind of want you to contrast what managers of capital might be thinking and doing versus what allocators of capital, who I think have strong feelings, many of them, regarding their mission, their vision, and how they want their portfolio allocated. Contrast allocators thinking and what you know of it versus what you see managers doing. Well, again, I, I, I think 
you know, allocators need to think carefully, and there's a lot of fuzzy thinking out there about what issues are most important to them and um, before, they, before they allocate dollar one of capital. And then they need to go look at the investment opportunities that best align with their values. So that, that's the allocator's job. And that's what's happening on the side of you know, fund managers or even individuals. You know, they, that's, what, that's what their job is. On the other side, we've just gone through this at my firm. The job of an organization, whether it's a not-for-profit, governmental entity, or, or a for-profit corporation, is not to change who they are because of what allocators are saying they want is to be true to what they are and then describe that in language that the allocators can understand. So we just went through that at my firm Baird and we said, okay, let's acknowledge that sustainability, socially responsible investing, ESG, impact, these are our trends that are here to stay. And increasingly, before we get hired by an individual or a local government or a pension fund or a corporation, we are being asked to describe you know, our commitment to inclusion and diversity, describe our environmental footprint, describe how we treat our employees and, and uh, our shareholders. And if we don't measure up on those considerations, we don't even get to the point. Yeah, where 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 our investment is is uh, a factor, but the trick on the part of the of the corporate entity or the organization is not to change who they are, as I was telling earlier, but describe themselves in in ESG, SRI, or sustainability terms, and that's what everybody is doing. The firms that are doing it authentically aren't making up what they're saying, but as you point out, there's a lot of greenwashing in marketing an inauthentic presentation yeah. it's really just pandering to where the money is flowing and, and that's and we do this over and over again and that's not a healthy trend and you know the sec chairman is is made it very clear that whether it's a you know regardless of who's doing that he's going to ferret it out and uh, take enforcement action so hopefully there'll be some corrective around the worst abuses well, one thing's for sure is there's going to be a lot of shaking out. Yes, there Shaking is. out of the players, shaking out of the standards. I, I, I'm really interested to see the next few years and where we go here because, you know, you and I go back 25 plus years to when it was really Calvert and Pax World and Rockefeller and a few bit players. It was very nichely thematic. And I thought actually that it would become much more forceful 25 years ago, it made a lot of sense, but it absolutely did not um, catch on in any broad scale way. And, you know, on we went for years um, in, in more capitalistic pursuits. And I think that this topic was left more to just the allocators who really cared. Now it's a much broader subject matter. So that's going to be interesting. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to talk with you, John. Look forward to uh, doing more of it and coming to Minneapolis in the depths of winter. <laughs> which is always a pleasure. I, I won't be here, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoyed our chat. Um, thanks everybody for joining and look forward to seeing you soon. All the best till next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.